doubts about whether or not there is a God. I have doubts about the nature of God if, you know, he exists. I have doubts about where I go when I die. I have doubts about if I have a soul. It's not easy to live with something that you don't know. I don't want to say that I think there is not a God, but I want to say, how do I know there's a God? I'm not trying to tell anybody there is not a God and I don't believe in a God. I want to, the question is for me, how do I know? How do you know there's a God? There could be something like a God, I believe, uh, but not necessarily what's in the Bible. There's, there's not a right or wrong answer. You know, you can't sit here and tell me that, you know, God exists because you believe God exists. Like, that's not an answer for right. me. I'm sorry. Not that I don't believe God exists, but, you know, to take things at face value because somebody said it or because it's written in the Bible wasn't an answer for me. I didn't have really any firm beliefs about God when I was a kid. I didn't really feel like I had a need to believe in a God when I was a kid. I do believe in a higher power. I do believe in God um, as far as him being the, the creator and the almighty. Maybe not. Uh, growing up, we never as a family went to church and I actually, I don't think I've even ever went to any church until junior high. When I was 11, my parents separated and got divorced, and that's separately, different churches, they both started going to church. Mm. And when we were with our dad, we went with our dad. When we were with our mom, we went with our mom. Just at that point, I just had a lot of questions, like, who is this God? Like, what does this mean? Am I supposed to believe it? Do I not believe it? You know, if, they, if there's a God out there that can pierce my heart and um, you know, show, show me the way, then obviously that's what I'm searching for. Um, I just haven't, uh, haven't really had that moment um, where I know. What is up, Venture? Welcome to week two of our Room for Doubt series. If you weren't able to join us last week, Stan kicked off this series by answering the question, is doubting bad? And a short summary of that, because that's not my message, I'm today. Last week, um, doubting is good. It actually helps our faith because we're able to uh, ask questions. We're able to go to the Bible and go to some of our fellow believers and get the questions that we're asking. And so it actually grows our faith. And so for the next four weeks, don't miss any of these questions. We're going through the questions that people doubt and the questions that people need answered. And so um, that's why I'm here today, and I'm glad to be answering one of these questions. When Stan asked me if I'd be interested in speaking one of these Room for Doubt series uh, weekends, I was really excited because um, I honestly love teaching about this kind of stuff more. It's not edgy, you know, but it, we don't talk about it a lot in churches, so... I was really excited. Um, you know, the fruits of the Spirit are good. Love, joy, peace, patience. I can write a message about those any day of the week. Those are great. But it's really important for us to also look at just some of the important questions when we're faced with these answers and these questions. So what I didn't know is when Stan was asking me to speak, he was really saying, like, hey, Jake, can, um, can you tackle the question that everyone's been arguing about since the beginning of time. And uh, another way to phrase, like, Jake, can you answer the question, like, if you don't answer this, 
none of this matters, right? It's the question that we all ask. And it's super, super easy, lighthearted. Does God really exist? Sweet. <laughs> Feels like the lead pastor's job. I'm student guy, but I guess here we go. No, I, I'm super excited. I am really glad to be here and talk about this because um, it's not every week that we get to talk about some of these questions. So as every week, we're encouraging you, take notes, listen up, write some things down because not we are not special speakers, but because these are the questions that you're going to be asked by your ones, by the people who don't believe what you believe. And so it's important to approach those conversations in love and not like you write something down so you're in that conversation and you're like, well... Jake told me this, and you're wrong. No, like you get there, and you have a conversation. You bring up some of these points that we're going to talk about. But uh, before we jump into the bulk of the message, we need to talk about who God is. What are we, what are we talking about when I say, does God really exist? The God we're talking about today is the God of our Bible. It's the God of the Old Testament that we see split the Red Sea, that we see bring plagues, and we see also manifest himself in Christ in person, in human form, and come into this earth and then die for our sins. That's the God that we're talking about, the God of our Bible. And so as we jump in, we need to also know as we're talking about these questions, as we're trying to wrestle with some of the ways that we can point people to Christ, we need to know what the other side is saying, what unbelievers are saying. And Richard Dawkins declared in one of his best-selling books, The God Delusion, this. The factual premise of religion the God hypothesis is weak. God almost certainly does not exist. And Richard Dawkins is just one of the many voices that are speaking this into our culture. And so we're growing up in a culture where we are hearing a bunch of noise, we're hearing a bunch of opinions, and how can we be confident that God actually does exist? How do we reply when someone walks up to you today and says, hey, I'm struggling with doubts. I'm struggling with my faith. Maybe I just don't believe. How do you know God really exists? It's a simple question, but it's very challenging, especially if you've been a Christian for a long time, because sometimes we don't step back and think, why do you believe what you believe? Why do you believe what you believe? In an age of growing skepticism, we are being asked more and more to defend our faith in God. And in fact, many of the most well, uh, most like popular books that are being written um, by a new group called the New Atheist are titled The End of Faith. God is not great. How religion poisons everything. And with this greater and greater demand of us who identify as Christ followers, we need to give an account of our belief. Is our faith just a hand-me-down version that we got from our parents? Is it based on wishful thinking? Is it just a blind leap of faith into beliefs and ideas that there is no evidence? Or can we set ourselves up? Can we gain knowledge? And as the Apostle Peter instructed us in 1 Peter 3.15, and if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. Not argue about it, not pe put, put people down about it, but to explain it, approach it in a conversation. And before we jump into some of our points, before we jump into some of our arguments for why God exists, we need to talk about the answer that does not work. The answer that does not work well with people is this. Well, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. 
This answer will not work for people. It only frustrates them because they want good and solid reasons for believing in God. And many of those conversations are not going to start from the baseline idea that the Bible is God's word. And guess what? The New Testament that we read about, those believers, those Christ followers who were going out and spreading the message of Jesus, they did not have a New Testament to point to. They were going off of their experience, off of the facts that they knew about Jesus, what they had seen. And so, if we want to help our friends out, if we want to go into these conversations confidently, we have to do one thing. We have to start where they are, not where we are. We all have the same baseline, which makes these conversations easier. But some of the people that you will be interacting with do not have that baseline. And yes, it's very important to move towards, well, the Bible tells us this. But they're probably not ready for that. We're going to be very more persuasive if we appeal to sources that they already trust. So today we're going to look at several of those reasons in three areas. Science, philosophy, and personal experience. Now, I have to warn you, I really nerded out when, I mean, sorry, um, That's probably offensive now. I don't know. Uh, I smart peopled out with this message, right? Like, there's going to be a lot of information today. So again, I encourage you to take notes. This is super interesting. And so as we dive in, here's the first reason that we know God exists. The beginning of the universe points us to God as its originator. The first reason is based on a branch of science called cosmology which is the study of the origin, structure, and development of the physical universe. And this reason that we're going to look at today is known as the cosmological argument. Also, cosmological is really hard to say. So if I mess up, just like show me some grace, Um, especially if you say it fast. So here's how the argument goes, right? Cosmological argument. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Believing that something can pop into existence at any time without any cause to me is a little bit more of a stretch than believing in magic. At least with magic, you've got a wand and you've got Harry Potter, right? You read the books, you watch the movies, and you're like, I don't know. Could work. Like, right? Because they make it believable, right? I know some of you are like, did he say Harry Potter? Um, So, yes, Harry Potter, right? And if something can just pop out into being from nothing, why don't we see that happening all the time? Truly, our everyday experience and scientific evidence confirms that if something begins to exist, it must have a cause. But if you know a scientist who can make pizza appear from nothing, please let me know. Because that is someone I need to get in contact with, right? Okay, the second idea of this argument is the universe began to exist. So we have everything that begins, begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. But the question we ask ourselves often is, did the universe begin or has it always existed? And atheists will typically say that the universe has just been here forever. It's just there and that's all it is. But... I told you I did research. The second law of thermodynamics tells us that the universe is slowly running out of usable energy. But if the universe has always been here, 
how could it be running out of energy? The second law of thermodynamics tells us that the universe had to have a beginning point because we are losing energy. We started at some place. And if something has been here indefinitely, if it is eternal, no beginning or end, it would probably not be running out of energy. So, to help confirm these point, this point, here's a couple scientific discoveries. In 1915, Albert Einstein presented his general theory of relativity. And this was the first time in history that we could talk meaningfully about the past history of the universe and also where we believed it was going. And then, in 1929, Edwin Hubble measured the redshift in light from distant galaxies. And this discovery of Hubble's confirmed not only that the universe is expanding, but that it sprang into being from a single point in the finite past. This was a monumental discovery because, honestly, no one could comprehend it at that time. And because no one could comprehend it, it wasn't long until a lot of alternative models started to pop up to explain the existence of the universe. But one by one, those models failed to stand the test of time against Einstein and Hubble's discoveries. And more recently, <clears throat> there are three leading cosmologists, Arvind Boyne, Boyne, Board, Alan Guth, and Alexander Vlenkin, that proved this, quote, any universe which has on average been expanding throughout its history cannot be eternal in the past, but must have an absolute beginning. Since the universe cannot cause itself, its cause must be beyond the space-time universe that we know. It must be spaceless, timeless, uncaused, and unimaginably powerful, much like God. Now, an objection to this that will sometimes come up is, well, if everything needs a cause, then who caused God? Fair objection. But it's missing the point of the argument, because the argument states that everything that begins to exist has a cause. But God did not begin to exist. He has always existed. Therefore, he does not need a cause. He is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. And another objection you might hear is you're right. The universe did have a beginning point. It's called the Big Bang. Stephen Hawking was a very big proponent of this. He's a famous author and physicist. And the Christian response is always, well, I don't believe in the Big Bang. I believe that God created the heavens and the earth in seven days. Which is true. But what if science is simply pointing to the very same event that is described at the beginning of the book of Genesis? The Big Bang itself causes, calls for a cause outside of the physical universe. One that is not physical, but that is wise and powerful enough to make it all happen. And from a Christian point of view, the Big Bang does sound like a compelling scientific description of that biblical doctrine. Because the biblical doctrine states that God spoke out of nothing, ex nihilo. This literally means that everything in the physical universe was made out of nothing. The very first words of Genesis tell us this. In the beginning... 
God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, the heavens and earth were created. In spite of what many people say, science is not at odds with the belief in God. On the contrary, science actually can and does provide compelling evidence for God's existence. Can you imagine with me? Nothing exists. And the God of the universe speaks. I always think in a Morgan Freeman voice, but like he speaks life, right? Light. Let there be light. Can you imagine out of nothing a voice? How powerful, what a bang that would be if there was darkness and then there was light. And then he says, let's make mountains. And the mountains rose and they did not go, right? Can you imagine the earth is flat and the mountains are just like, Vroom. that ain't silent, right? That's a big bang, right? God is a beautiful creator, the creator of this universe. Okay, the second argument that I want to look at today, the second evidence, is the fine-tuning argument. I love being out in nature. I love hiking trails and turkey run or being in the backyard with my family or even just road tripping across the country on an adventure. When we're out in nature, we see the incredible design of our world. And a lot of times, I'm just amazed at the beauty and the complexity of it all. Growing up, my grandma would often remind me of Psalm 19.1 that says this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. And as a kid, we would walk around these trails near my grandparents' lake house or even just driving around Hamilton County. And she would tell us, keep your eyes out. Find an I see Jesus moment. And these were moments where we're just looking for anything. Right? As a kid, it's a leaf. As you grow up, it's like the deer walking through the woods. Those I see Jesus moments are impactful because you're looking at the world around you, trying to see God's creation in the small things and in the big things. And I'm 26 years old. I still am talking to myself in the car sometimes like a mad person, like, that's an I see Jesus moment. Wow, look at the I see Jesus moments. Like, that's what we do when we look at the creation around us. Now here's what's amazing. The evidence shows that the beauty and complexity in life itself did not spring into existence by itself. Rather, science is now telling us that the building blocks of our universe, the laws and the physical constants that govern all matter, appear to be precisely balanced and fine-tuned to allow life to exist and to flourish. These laws and constants were dialed in all at once during the Big Bang creation that God had in store. In other words, when the universe first came into being, there were a number of variables within the very structure of the universe that had to be set exactly the way they needed to be in order for life to exist. And now scientists have so far discovered 50 of these constants that must be precisely right in order for life to be possible anywhere in the universe. Anywhere in the universe, they have to be precisely right. So here's an example. Physicists have discovered four fundamental forces in nature, and one of those forces is the force of gravity. Incredibly, if the force of gravity were to change by just one part in 10,000 billion, 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 life would cease to exist. 
to illustrate this, this is really hard to illustrate, so just like you gotta like, there is no illustration because it's impossible, right? Take a ruler, stretch it across the entire known universe, okay? Now let's say that we mark on that ruler at one of the one inch marks. I'm gonna put it right next to Earth, okay, right? And that's where the gravity currently is. Now, if we change the strength of gravity by the equivalent of just one inch, remember the ruler is across the entire universe, one inch, the strength of gravity would change by one billion times. In life, anything like we know it would simply not exist. And that's just one of the constants. Not to mention the 50 that are out there. Not to mention the four fundamental laws. That's just one of them. And it would simply change life to non-existent. Another example, if the explosion of the Big Bang, like is described by many atheists, if it had discovered, or if it had differed in strength by as little as one part in 10 to the 60th power, that's one times 10 to 60 zeros afterwards, life would be impossible for the future. Thank you. One last example. And this one's a little hard for me to comprehend, I'm not going to lie. Like when I was writing it, I was like, I don't even. But it's cool, so I'm going to share it with you, okay? And this is what research does, right? Dr. Robin Collins, he's an expert in philosophy. He, he describes another example, the cosmological constant. This is the energy density measured of empty space, also known as dark energy. And Collins said that this physical constant is inconceivably precise. And he illustrated this way. Let's say you were out in space and you had a dart in your hand. You're just going to throw it randomly towards Earth. It would be like successfully hitting a bullseye that's one trillionth of a trillionth of an inch in diameter. That is less than the size of a solitary atom. I can't hit a bullseye from two feet away, let alone from space smaller than an atom. And if the odds are that small, that just one area to be that precisely tuned to support life. Imagine how small the odds become when you think of all the other factors that have to be fine-tuned to a razor's edge. Mm. So, with all that being said, this is how the second argument goes. The amazing convergence of many examples of fine-tuning in this universe each independently set to precise values points to a powerful existence of an astonishingly intelligent creator and designer who made it all just perfectly right, just for us. Isaiah 40, 25 through 28 reads like this. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? asks the Holy One. Look up into the heavens who created all the stars. He brings them out like an army, one after another, calling each by its name. Because of his great power and incomparable strength, not a single one is missing. Oh, Jacob, how can you say the Lord does not see your troubles? Oh, Israel, how can you say God ignores your rights? Have you never heard? Have you never understood the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth? He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. The Lord is the everlasting God. He has no beginning. He has no end. 
He is the creator of all the earth, of all the universe with his words. And he never grows weak or weary. God is not running out of energy. God is eternal and he has always been here and he will never end. Okay, reason number three. Our sense of morality points us to God as a moral lawgiver. Each of us has an internal standard of morality. And it points to objective moral truth that is above us and outside of us. Our moral compass is not mere just human opinion or preference. Why would we as humans invent a moral code that we can never fulfill? Also, think about it this way. Our moral criticism of others shows that we have to believe that there is an objective morality. C.S. Lewis says it like this in his Mere Christianity book. Whenever you find a man who says he does not believe in a real right and wrong, you will find that same man going back on this a moment later. He may break his promise to you, but if you try breaking one to him, he will be complaining, it's not fair. It seems then we are forced to believe in a real right and wrong. And people may be sometimes mistaken about them, just as people sometimes get their sums wrong. But they are not a matter of mere taste and opinion any more than the multiplication table. Basic morality is not a matter of personal opinion. Now someone might love chocolate ice cream and someone might love vanilla ice cream. But morality is not like that. If an adult chooses to abuse a child, we do not regard that as exercising personal preference. It is morally wrong. Morality is not preference. And now some will argue with you that our moral sense is actually created by our culture. And this is true in particular things, like those of you who drive 80 miles an hour on 465, like, you're good with that, right? That's just your preference to go faster. But in other areas of the country, like the speed limit is the speed limit, right? We do, as a matter of fact, have moral sense that goes beyond mere culture. For example, consider what ISIS has been doing and has done the last couple years of the people in the Middle East. Even though they say their religion commands them to kidnap, sell, and murder people, that does not mean that they are not morally wrong, just because that's what they believe and find acceptable. And what about Adolf Hitler? His final solution to eliminate the Jewish race was embraced by the entire Nazi party. Yet the world was morally justified in condemning these actions, even though the Nazis had accepted it within their culture and their own laws. The fact is that our moral criticism reveals an objective morality that is above any particular culture. But where did we get the sense of right and wrong? If we didn't invent it, if it transcends the realms of culture and politics, if we can't get away from it, then what is the source? Could it be that there is a moral lawgiver who has weaved it into the very fabrics of humanity? That conclusion squares with logic and experience. And interestingly, it also lines up with Romans 2, 14 through 15. This is Paul speaking. He says, Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. 
they demonstrate that God's law is written on their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. God has written the moral framework into our hearts. There is so much more to be said. The evidence, we just like, we didn't even scratch the surface. I don't even, I don't know what's lower than that, but like we haven't even began to dive into the evidence for this. But here's where we're at with our three topics we just covered. Number one, we serve a God who started this immense universe with a bang, creating everything. Number two, we serve a God who fine-tuned that universe to extremely precise tolerances so it would support life including yours and mine. And last, we serve a God who is perfectly good and who created us with a deeply embedded sense of morality. Now, we need to look at one more reason One that flows from our experience as Christians, and it is this. Our personal experience points to a God who is worthy of our worship. Today we have looked at a ton of heady evidence. I hope you've been able to keep up with the notes. I appreciate you sticking with me. But there is more of a personal response that those of us who are followers of Christ can also give to others. We can look them in the eye and say, how do I know God exists? He changed my life. I went from death to life. I went from searching for meaning in the world to knowing that I am perfectly and wonderfully made. I went from searching to love to knowing that I am loved no matter what I do. That's the God I serve. That's the God that loves me. And I love him. There's an old hymn that has the words, you ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. These three, first three arguments, these first three reasons, they can be dismissed, but genuine personal experience is difficult to dismiss. And that's why the Apostle Paul appealed to it, as did other biblical writers. In Acts 26, Paul is describing his trip to Damascus, where he was going to go kill Christians. Because he thought he was doing what was right. And then he meets Jesus on the road. Jesus blinds him where he cannot see. And then Jesus changes his life forever. That Paul was now on a new mission to bring people to know Jesus. To bring people into a faith in the creator of this world that he had had first hand experience with. And then also in John chapter 9, it describes a blind man who was healed and given sight by Jesus. This man did not know theology, he did not know philosophy, he did not know science, yet he was able to boldly proclaim this. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. One thing I do know is my personal experiences tells me I could not see, but now I do. So if you're a Christian... Talking about God's influence in your life can be a powerful part of your answer to people who ask you if they know God exists. But remember, we don't only have our experience, we also have science, we have philosophy, and as we'll see in the weeks ahead, we have history to support our claims. And maybe you're sitting there going like, did that guy just say that someone raised from the dead earlier and then he just said some guy could not see and now he can't see? What is going on? Have we got news for you? 
You gotta have a conversation. You gotta discover who God is. All of these points, points that we've covered today look at and point to an invisible God, the one that the Bible describes as the God of Abraham, of Isaac and Jacob, and each one of us as followers of Jesus. He is a God who creates, who loves, and who is worthy of our praise. And if you're a Jesus follower, you can stand confidently on those truths. Again, if you do not believe, I urge you, follow the evidence where it leads. Because not only will you discover the God of the Bible and belief in him, but you will also have a faith in Jesus Christ if you're open to finding out more about him. Church, these are important conversations we're having. These are important conversations that you are going to have with people who don't believe. And it's important to prepare yourself, but more importantly, to stand firm and to have a conversation in confidence with who God is. I'm going to invite the band to come out. And before we close, I just want to quickly mention to come back next week. It's so important. We are tackling more and more of these questions. We're looking at some of the hardest hitting questions that you're probably going to be asked by people who don't believe and our hope is that you'll take notes, that you'll be prepared for those conversations. So please come back. And the other thing that I want to point your attention to is a phone number on the screen. Stan talked about this last week. If you text any question to this number, we will receive it. We would love to answer it. Hopefully we'll answer it throughout this series. But if not, we'd love to answer it personally one-on-one with you. And also, if you'd like to join a group, you can text this number. You just text group to that number, and we've actually got one starting in a little bit. That's just not today, but in a couple weeks, where you'll be able to just digest more of this information. You're going to be able to ask more questions and be in a group surrounded by people curious and hungry for more. So I would encourage you to do that. (sighs) There's only one way to respond, and that's through prayer. So we're going to worship here in a second, but before we do that, would you just close your eyes, bow your heads with me, and we're just going to pray to the God, the creator of our universe. Lord, thank you. Thank, Thank you for who you are and what you've done in our lives. Thank you that we can look at evidence that you have provided us outside of your text to see that you are wonderfully making this world that you have already been at work and you will never cease to do more work. God, you are good. You are worthy of our praise and our worship. And I pray right now, Lord, that your spirit would just fill the hearts of people in here. Both those who have believed for a long time who feel reju- to feel rejuvenated and those who do not believe, Lord, to have a curiosity to know you. We're not just blowing smoke up here. This is real life. This is truth. You are alive and you are working in our lives. We give this day to you. Lord, we give our lives to you. In your name I pray. Amen.